Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies, and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely. Yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, we would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. A reading from Romans. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. To, uh, <clears throat> to be completely honest with you, uh, this week in this message uh, was one that was pretty difficult for me uh, to put together. Um, Gabe and Dawn uh, were my family's realtors uh, over the past year. And if you know anything about Gabe, you know that uh, any kind of professional relationship like that, uh, the, the boundaries are blurred in the best way. Um, Gabe and Don are the kind of people that when it's in the middle of a pandemic and you have an inspection at your house where you have to find a place for your toddler for three hours one morning, invite you over for breakfast. I mean, they're so generous and so compassionate and uh, um, it's just been a hard week. Um, and as a pastor grieving and, and knowing that I was going to be speaking to a church that many of you knew, Gabe, will also be grieving. This text that we have today just felt so incongruent to where I am. Because you see, as a pastor, when we go through moments of grief, you, you want to preach about God's grace and his mercy and his compassion and the incarnation, how God is with us in our suffering. And the passage that I had is... 17 different commands for how the people of God are supposed to live in the world that hates them. And it just feels so incongruent um, to where I find myself. 
And so I really wrestled with this this week of should I just punt this passage and, and, and come with a different message? And the more I wrestled, I just, I felt this overwhelming sense. I couldn't shake this feeling that this text is so critical. What Paul has to say is so important to the historical moment that the church finds itself in. You see, because you know this, but, but we, for one of the first times in Christian history, we're one of the first generations that is having to wrestle with what it means to be a church that is losing power. The church in America is in decline. Many of the, the things that we have believed are being pushed back against. Many of the influences that we've had on society and politics are fading. And the question before the church, the question that I think for our generation of believers to answer is how will we respond to that moment? This historical moment we find ourselves in. To be honest, this is probably too much information, but I can't tell you the number of times as a young pastor I have wondered, what am I doing becoming a pastor in America right now? I mean, to be honest with you, the, 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 I see the, the church in decline by any statistical metric. I see the influence of the church in decline, and I just wonder, have I tied my livelihood to a sinking ship? I mean, what? I would love to be a pastor for the next 30, 40 years. What in the world is the church going to look like 40 years from now? So, so this is coming from a place of empathy because not only are, are, are we losing influence or, or losing our position of power, but, but in many cases, while I would argue we are not being persecuted, we are being pushed against. As believers, we can feel the, the shift in tide in our culture of the ways that the things that the church has long held to be true are being pushed back against, and, and not even just because they're outdated, but because they're immoral or because they're dangerous. And we find ourselves in this moment where people are pushing back against who the church has always claimed to be. How will we respond? And I have to be honest, while again, I would argue that we're not in per persecution now, I do think that it could be coming. The horizon looks rough. And while I don't think that, that we'll face the Colosseum like the Christians of old, I do think that there will be consequences to some of the beliefs we hold. I, I think there will be financial consequences or, or possibly some of our religious liberties that we've enjoyed. I think some of the things that, that have been true of the Christian church and our society and the way that we have been accepted will not be. And how will we respond? I, I have to be honest with you, more than my fear of that future, more than my concern of what it might look like to be a pastor in the year 2040, more than my concern of all of the ways our culture is shifting, I am deeply, deeply concerned about the response of the church. Because if I'm honest, I think we are losing power poorly. 
There's really two ways that I see that playing out. And the first is this. I, I see when, when people begin to recognize the ways that the church is losing power and losing influence and, and the ways that we are being pushed aside and marginalized and our beliefs are not being adhered to or valued or, or seen as contributing to the common good but actually detracting from it, we seize power back. We fight back. We try to claim what's ours. We try to make sure that the the shifting tide of culture doesn't shift too quickly. And so we will stop it by grabbing the powers that are available to us. And some of us, we don't feel the, the temptation to fight back as much as we feel the temptation to just fade into the crowd. Because we're recognizing that, that while Christianity is losing its influence, it, it is also losing its respectability. I mean, let's face it, not only are there less Christians in our neighborhoods, but our neighbors think less of us because of our faith. And so the temptation we have when beliefs that we hold are called bigoted or dangerous is to just fade back into the crowd and go with the flow and allow popular opinion to dictate our beliefs and our behaviors. And I think both responses are deeply, deeply missing the mark. And where we find ourselves in Romans, in this chapter of Romans 12, Paul is writing to a church that that though they don't have power that they are losing, they actually have a fairly similar circumstance to us and that they're not being persecuted outright but they are facing societal ostracization. They're being marginalized. They're being pushed back against. And and persecution is on the horizon. We know from church history that that years later, they will be driven out by the Roman Empire and face deep persecution. And Paul is writing in this moment, and he is trying to unpack the implications of the gospel. And he keeps expanding the implications of the gospel and how people are to interact in the community of faith. And so he starts, he begins in Romans 12, 1 and 2, by by unpacking the gospel, this good news, the mercy of God that transforms our lives. And then he begins to unpack the implications for the body of Christ, that if we believe the gospel, if we consider ourselves a part of this community, there are implications for how we love one another, and how we treat one another, and how we see ourselves, and how we interact and use our gifts. And then he expands it further beyond the body to those outside of the body, the other, the stranger. And then next week, he'll even expand it further to to the implications of the gospel for how Christians interact with the state and the government and the society that they find themselves in. But today we are looking at this part, the other. How are we as the people of God called to live amongst people who do not believe what we believe? who do not share our values? How are we called to live as Christians, as followers of Jesus, when people push back against us? How are we called to live in a hostile environment? And while Paul unpacks this idea of how we're supposed to live amongst the other, and he does that in about 17 commands in seven verses, really those 17 commands boil down to about two points. The first is this, the people of God in a hostile environment pursue hospitality. And the people of God in a hostile environment do not pursue hostility. So first, we are people who are are called to pursue hospitality. This is what it says in Romans 12, 13, and 14. 
This is the hinge where Paul is shifting from talking about the people inside the body to outside of the body. He says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Again, inside the body, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now this hinge of the shift from inside the body to outside of the body all rests on this idea of practicing hospitality. You see, what Paul is saying there, and Larry touched on this a little bit last week, is is it's this idea that we are to welcome the stranger among us. Hospitality, the word Paul uses there is philiozenia. It's the opposite, the antithesis of xenophobia. He's saying love the stranger, create spaces for them so that they might become your friend. Now, when we think of hospitality, let's be honest, we kind of think of like making sure our house is in order, We cook a good meal, and some of us might even light a candle in the bathroom just to make sure we cover all our bases so people feel welcome, right? But Paul is saying something beyond that. We miss it in this passage, but but when Paul says practice hospitality, bless those who, who persecute you, practice and persecute are actually the exact same word. Paul says pursue hospitality, Pursue the love of the stranger. Bless those who are pursuing against you, even if they are seeking your harm. It is an impossibly difficult command to begin this teaching that that as we, the people of God, interact with people outside of our community, we are to pursue a hospitality that makes the stranger, the other, our enemies, our friends. And he gives a couple practical ways that we can do this. And there's, there's quite a few of them in this passage, but, but I'd like to highlight just two that I think are critically important for us in this moment that we find ourselves in. The first way that he says we can display hospitality to those around us is that we are to develop empathy for those outside of the community of faith. This is what he says In verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Let me read that again. Rejoice with those who rejoice, even if they are your enemies. Mourn with those who mourn, even if they are your enemies. This is a radical implication of the gospel of how Paul is calling the people of God to interact with those outside of our community. Can you think for a moment about how radical this is? Just collectively, let's think of people that, that groups of people that we know to be antagonistic towards our faith, that, that have it out to harm our faith and our communities, that would see the church in America decline. Those groups of people, those enemies, we rejoice when they rejoice. And we mourn when they mourn. And let's face the reality of that. If if people who are our enemies are rejoicing, then it likely means something not great has happened to us, potentially. If we are mourning with those who are mourning, even if they are our enemies, we are empathizing with them, even if it means we just had a cultural victory. See, this is a radical radical implication for the gospel. Think of the last tragedy that we went through as a society. Anything horrible that's happened to us recently as a society, as a country, as a community. 
I mean, we can we could talk about the, the snow in Texas. We could talk about one of the school shootings. How quickly does it take people to turn a tragedy into an opportunity for them to push their agenda on others? Every tragedy our country, our society faces is instantaneously an opportunity to say, this is why we should do this. We don't know how to mourn. What if we, as the people of God, were known for something different? That when people are mourning, we don't say, ah, see, told you so, or ah, see, this is why we should do this. We just wept with those who are weeping. What if our ethic as a people of God was not to just push some cultural agenda, but to just simply sit with people who are weeping? Because here's here's the thing. When we talk about pursuing those outside of the faith, when we talk about the ways that we're supposed to engage with those outside of the faith, we almost instantaneously take it to a place, right, where, where it's evangelism. We just have to share the gospel and bring them in. That's how we make enemies friends. I hate to say this. Evangelism is so critically important, but Paul is not talking about evangelism here. Unfortunately, sometimes in the church, we boil the the height of Christian engagement with the outside world, the height of how we're supposed to engage with people outside of our faith down to evangelism. And we make Christianity some sort of really bad game of Pokemon Go, where we just got to catch them all. Anybody we interact with, we just got to catch them and make them Christians. But Paul is not talking about evangelism. He is talking about ethics, the ethics that define our faith. And he is saying that we are to be a people who mourn with those who mourn, that we are to be a people who rejoice with those who rejoice, to develop empathy for those outside of our community. I heard a black pastor once say, about our society, that that we all have a PhD in statistics and a third grade education in empathy. It's true. We all have the statistics. We all have the proof for why our agenda, our way of living, our things that we want to see happen in the world are true and right. And we can all back that argument up. But do we have the empathy to look at our neighbor, to look at our enemy and not dehumanize them, but empathize with them. That is what Paul is calling the people of God to be, the ethic that is to define our character as a community. And when people see Christians coming to tragedy, they don't say, oh, here they come with their agenda. They say, oh, these are the people who weep with those who are weeping, who enter into suffering. And the second way Paul says that we can can show hospitality beyond developing empathy, one of the things he says is that, that we're to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. To do what is right in the eyes of everyone. This is what he says in verse 17 and 18. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What Paul is talking about here is is he's recognizing that Christians, we are always under scrutiny from those who are outside of our faith. 
we're always under scrutiny for the way that we behave. And, and people are looking to see, is what we believe true? Is what we believe how we behave? He's talking about Christian conduct, and he is saying that our conduct has to, has to, has to align with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the standard Jesus sets for us has to be what we as the people of God are known for. And so we are to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now here is how this plays out practically in two different ways. The first is, I think that means that we have to be people who, who exegete our culture, who can look at our culture and see the ways that they actually get things right. Though broken and fallen and sinful and evil, they still get things right. They still stumble into the truth. And when we see that, can we examine our culture and affirm that truth? Is anyone here a fan of the TV show The Mandalorian? on Disney Plus. And I recognize that that's the kind of show that you might not want to raise your hand for. I love it, so you can feel free to raise your hand if you like that show. On that show, there's a character named Baby Yoda. Everyone loves Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda is cute, he's sweet, he's a little animatronic puppet that makes all the nostalgia of like the original Star Wars movies come back in the best way. Everyone loves Baby Yoda until Baby Yoda almost got canceled. I don't know when this happened, but somewhere along the way, we decided that social media wasn't for connecting with one another, but for canceling one another. And Baby Yoda was almost canceled. Here's the kicker. Do you know why Baby Yoda was almost canceled? He ate these little round orb things that were unfertilized eggs of an endangered alien species. People lost their minds. Twitter freaked the mess out. How could baby Yoda eat the, the unfertilized eggs of an endangered alien species? Now, I have to tell you, as someone who almost daily eats unfertilized chicken eggs, thought, what are you people doing? This is ridiculous. And then I thought about it on, on a little bit of a deeper level. What does a society that devalues the sanctity of human life have to say about unfertilized alien eggs? But then I thought about it on a deeper level. What was it that these people were tapping into that so angered them, that so frustrated them. They were recognizing the potential of all life and that it deserves to be protected. Even if they didn't recognize it themselves, even if they stumbled onto that truth. And are we, as a community of believers, ready in those moments to jump on the opportunity and to, to recognize and help affirm the truth that our culture and our society has stumbled onto? Can we point to the gospel and, and in a society, frankly, that, that devalues the sanctity of all life? Can we step into those moments and, and affirm the Imago Dei and how all life, even the potential for life, deserves to be protected and valued?
See, that's what Paul means when he says affirm what we can do, what is right in the eyes of everyone. But here's the, the trick. The flip side is that we can't affirm everything, right? We live in a society that is deeply broken, that is fallen, that is sinful. And many of the things that our society says are true go contrary and against the grain to our gospel, and we cannot be people who are just swayed by public opinion and, and whatever the morality of the day is. And this is that same fear. We, we want to fade back into the crowd and just accept the norms that our society puts forth as truth. We have to be people that resist where we can. We affirm truth when we see it, but we resist when we must. We resist when we must, when, when society comes and, and holds up things to be true that we know are not true. We have to speak truth in that moment, no matter the cost, no matter the consequences, no matter what may come our way. You see, as the people of God, the way we live, what, what we believe is incredibly important. It is. But we sometimes miss that how we live is equally as important. That how we behave reflects our beliefs. The ways we live out our faith are a reflection to our society to show them what we think is truth. And in a way, we are a preview, a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. And as we live in community, as people look at us, they should see a taste of the kingdom of heaven. It's like a movie trailer. Do you guys remember when we could go see movies how awesome was that? I love going to the movies. My brothers and I, we would go to the movies all the time, and we're those people who have to show up early to watch all of the trailers. Drives my wife crazy because it means we're always showing up 45 minutes before the movie even starts. We love watching the trailers. And we would have a simple way with communicating with one another whether or not we would go see the movie that we just saw the trailer for. We wouldn't look at each other. We wouldn't talk to one another. We wouldn't say anything. We just simply, as we're sitting in a row in the movie theater in the dark, we'd throw our hand up, and at the end of the trailer, we'd either give it a thumbs up, let's go see it, thumbs down, nope, no way, or so-so, probably need to see the next trailer before I decide. My fear is that as the people of God, as we are representing the kingdom of God, people are watching the trailer and giving us a thumbs down or a so-so at best. Because we are conforming to the patterns of this world. We are leaning into the way the world defines truth and goodness and morality, and we are just going with the flow. And so people see no differentiation between us and them. So why would they believe our gospel? Russell Moore, the head of the, the Southern Baptist Ethics Committee, he says this, the church is bleeding out the next generation, not because the culture is so opposed to the church's fidelity to the truth, but just the reverse. The culture often does not reject us because they don't believe the church's doctrinal and moral teachings but because they have evidence that the church doesn't believe its own doctrinal and moral teachings. They suspect that Jesus is just a means to an end, to some political agenda, to a market for selling merchandise, or for the predatory appetites of some maniacal narcissist. The witness of the church is at stake. More importantly, the lives of those made in the image of God, those for whom Jesus died, are at stake. When we live our Christian ethic, 
when we hold truth, there will be a cost. But the cost of not doing so is far, far greater. People's lives and souls are at stake. And the credibility of our witness is the only thing we can control in that arena. So are we willing to affirm what is true where we can, but to resist where we must? See, Paul says that the people of God, we, we display this hospitality through the development of empathy and through doing what's right in our community's eyes. And if those commands seem impossible, then, then the second is even more so. Because he says the people of God are supposed to be a people who do not pursue hostility, even against those who seek their harm. He says this in the end of the passage. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, as the Christian people, we are not supposed to live in a hostile world and repay evil for evil. What Paul is saying is that the, the, the character of the Christian community is not such that when we face persecution, when people seek our harm, when people fight against us, we are the people that do not fight back. Now, I have to pause at this moment because there are so many churches, so many veins of Christianity, so many church leaders who have abused and misused this text. And what they have said is they have said that, that if women are in a situation of abuse or domestic violence, that they have to stay for the sake of the gospel. Or they have said that if churches abuse people spiritually or physically or sexually or emotionally, they shouldn't speak out because that will bear witness against the gospel. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The only thing that hurts the witness of the church is not the abused, but the abuser. And we have to stop living under this lie that the church is supposed to be the place that protects people who commit abusive acts in the name of the gospel. The church is called to protect the abused. Paul is not saying here that if you are in an abusive situation, you must stay. In fact, if you look at Paul's life, time and time again, he leaves situations of abuse and persecution where people are coming for him. He's not saying that you stay. He's saying that you do not repay, that you do not seek vengeance. He doesn't even say that you can't seek justice. He says, do not repay. Do not take matters into your own hands. Do not be the people who fight back. You see, because what it really boils down to is this, this line here at the end, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The actual word there for, for overcome is, is conquer. He's saying, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. 
Another way of phrasing that is that that when we engage in evil, when we repay evil for evil, when we seek revenge, we too are conquered by evil. We are only contributing to the evil ways of the world. We are being conformed to the world. When we seize power, when we fight back, we are simply following the way of the world, the, the story, the narrative that the world has only ever known. And we are participating in that system. He's saying, may it not be with the people of God. May we be the people who, when evil befalls us, when people seek our harm, we seek their good so that we are not conquered by the same system of evil. In one of the greatest movies of all time, Mr. Miyagi says a very similar thing to the karate kid, Danielson. If you've ever seen the movie, you know that Daniel, he's being beat up, he's being bullied, he's being knocked around by the Cobra Kai. And he comes to Mr. Miyagi and he says, I want revenge. I want to get even. I want to give them what's theirs. Because let's face it, that's all of our first inclination. That's what all of us want to do when we're harmed. And Mr. Miyagi says in his wise way, if you start down that path, start by digging two graves. Because vengeance, retribution, violence only leads to more evil. And the people of God are not to be characterized by those ways. We have a different source of strength. We do not need to fight back. We can stand firm in restraint. You might be able to tell from this next illustration that I've been watching a lot of Karate Kid and Cobra Kai lately. Well, I can't recommend the TV show. Sorry. (laughs) We have a different source of strength. And that when the world comes against us and belittles us, we have a strong foundation that keeps us firm. We don't take it lying down. We don't just have to, to get beaten up. We get back up. But there's a strength in our foundation that when the world comes after us and it persecutes us, we don't have to persecute back. When it belittles us, we don't have to belittle back. When it fights us, we do not have to fight back. When it threatens us, we do not have to threaten back. We have a deeper source of strength, something that is immovable and unshakable that does not need to take vengeance into its own hands. I do not know if you know this, but if you are a part of the people of God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a part of the church, you are a part of the most resilient movement the world has ever known. That though nations and empires persecute us and push us down and malign us and belittle us, they have crumbled and we have stayed and remained because of our foundation. There is nothing the world can push against the church that should cause us to fight back because we have a foundation that no matter how many times they try to knock us down, we remain strong in Jesus Christ. Here's the hard truth. As a follower of Jesus, if he has not transformed the ways that you treat your enemies, you are not following the way of Jesus. 
if Jesus has not transformed the ways that we interact with those who oppose us, who belittle us, who persecute us, then we are not following the way of Jesus. See, we find ourselves in this moment in history where we do sense the tension. We sense the the ways that the church is losing power, losing influence, and I understand the fear. I understand that we don't know what's coming next. I understand that things that we have always held to be true are coming undone. And yet, as the people of God, we are called to a higher standard, a gospel standard, a higher ethic of how we treat those outside of our community. That we are not moved no matter what the world throws against us. And that firm foundation comes from two places in this letter that Paul writes. And the first is this, that we trust that God is in control. He says, we do not have to take vengeance into our own hands because God says that vengeance is his. And he's not saying here that that because of the wrath of God that's coming, that that God is just going to burn all of our enemies to a crisp. What he's saying is that when wrong happens, when evil happens, God is the one who will set things right. And that we as the people of God don't have to take matters into our own hands because we trust that they are in his. And the second place that Paul says that we can trust, that this firm foundation, this strength comes from, is the mercy of God, the wrath of God and the mercy of God. Because we know in the cross, this this calling, this ethic, that the people of God are supposed to be a people who, who make enemies into friends. As the people of God, we recognize that that story is our story. That Jesus gave his life for us while we were still enemies so that we might be called the friends of God. So that the stranger might be made whole. And it amazes me the number of times in the Gospels where, where the writers go out of their way to describe how Jesus could have stopped the persecution that was happening to him. The people come and they, they come to arrest Jesus and, and Peter draws his sword and he begins fighting back and he slices a person's ears off. Jesus stops him, heals the man and says, don't you know I could call down legions of angels who would stop what is happening right now in an instant. They would protect me. And he chooses not to. On the cross, as Jesus is ridiculed and mocked and belittled and people say, why don't you save yourself? Can't you do anything? You could heal the blind. Save yourself. Jesus chooses not to. Do we realize the restraint in that moment? That Jesus dying on the cross has more power in his pinky finger than we will ever have collectively as a whole, and he still chooses not to use it. And that Jesus, as he is dying, Breathing his last breath, he could call down curses from heaven to take care of all of his enemies. And instead, the words he utters are, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. How dare we think that we can follow another way? See, when we have grappled with and wrestled with this truth that we were the enemies of God and he has made us friends, that he has shown us that mercy, that grace. There's no other response 
but to show that same hospitality of the cross to our enemies. And here's the crazy part. This is an impossible standard. And yet there's grace and mercy for that. That though we stumble, though we bumble our way through this, and though we misrepresent the gospel of Jesus, there's still grace for us. So may we, the people of Waterstone, have the strength, have the faith that no matter what the world throws our way, no matter what the world says it can do to us, we have the strength and the faith to hold fast to who Jesus is. We don't have to fight back. We've already won. We just have to show the love of Jesus to our enemies so that the stranger might become friend. May we have that courage in a future that is unknown. May that be the ethic that defines the community of Waterstone as we pursue the way of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, though we do not face persecution necessarily in this moment, we can sense the shifting tide of our culture. We can recognize the ways that we are losing influence and power. God, it is so easy to conform to the patterns of this world and to use the weapons and the tools that are available to us. And may we be a people characterized by the grace and mercy of God. May we be a people who don't seek to repay. We don't seek out hostility, but that we would seek to be hospitable to those around us. Seek and pursue the stranger so that they might become friend. It is only through the powerful name of Jesus that, that this is even possible. May it be true of us. May it be true of our church. And may we rise to this moment in history. Nothing about it has surprised you. Nothing about it. you have placed us here for this moment. May we be faithful as you are faithful to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.